Well, good morning. It's, uh, it is a, a beautiful day, and yet as I, um, as I prepared for this, I was reminded that we are nearing the 20-year anniversary, the memorial of what happened when our nation was attacked on September 11th. Uh, many of you remember that, maybe not all. Uh, I know we have some youngsters over there, but uh, you may remember we had tremendous unity as a nation. Do you remember that? Do you remember that Democrats and Republicans in Congress saying, God bless America on the Capitol steps? Just under 20 years later, we saw a very different scene on the Capitol steps. On January 6th, what happened? Society has become horribly divided over the last two decades. And as we talk about that division, my question for you this morning is this. What are you against? What are you against? You might say, well, Democrats or Republicans. You might say Presidents Obama or Trump or Biden. You might say the impeachment, racism, CRT, wealth inequality, power policy in Afghanistan. You might say the things that have come out of COVID. You might say masking or vaccines. You see, all these things are bad news, aren't they? They're all bad news. And like society, unfortunately, the church has become wrapped up in bad news. Christians have had friendships destroyed because of their positions on COVID over the last year. Masks have divided the church across America. Vaccines have become a tipping point. A few months ago, I began to be concerned that Christians are known more in our country for what we are against than what we are for. So that then raises this question, what are you for? What are you for? You might have said any of the above issues, but we're in church, so you know you got to say something like, I'm for God. Right? That's what you got to do. Does your life demonstrate that? Does your life demonstrate that you're for God? What happened to the church? I get society falling apart, but what happened to the church? I would suggest that these divisions didn't just happen. I think there's a lot to this, but I think key is that the church has forgotten its mission. In the largest Protestant denomination in America, the Southern Baptist Conference, churches have been experiencing a significant drop in the number of baptisms over the last 20 years. And we can explain 2020 up there away, right? We can say, well, that was the year of COVID. But what about the rest of the decline? And then, of course, we can look at new church construction. New church construction over the same time has declined in much the same way. Well, you might say, but what about First Baptist? What about here? We're growing, and we have been growing. Some of this growth is from other churches in our town, and we're glad that you've chosen to worship with us. Some of it has been from believers moving into Sheridan who see this community as an oasis. 
But we are, are we in fact experiencing growth from the addition of new believers? Growth because we are reaching our community for Jesus Christ. I'm not so sure. This morning, we will be talking about the need for evangelism. As believers, we are called to be for the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to be evangelists. The word evangelist in the Greek literally means one who proclaims good news. Believers are called to do this. We are called to proclaim that which we are for, not that which we are against. A couple of questions for you. Who's the last person that you shared the gospel with? Can you picture their face in your mind? Who's the last person that you should have shared the gospel with? Can you picture them? I would wager that many of us have had a lot of other intense debates with people, a lot more of those than we have shared the gospel. Francis Perry Schaeffer, the noted Christian philosopher, said that the United States, and this was back in like the 70s or 80s, said that the United States was rapidly becoming a post-Christian nation. A post-Christian nation. Arizona Christian University did some research that they've just released about that. They researched whether or not they believed whether or not we are in fact becoming a post-Christian nation. Dr. Tracy Munsell from ACU from Arizona Christian said this, American Christianity is undergoing a post-Christian reformation and rather than providing leadership and faithfulness in an age of moral decline, members of the majority of the nation's major Christian groups are rapidly leaving biblical foundations behind and exchanging traditional theological beliefs for the culture's secular values. And they are customizing their beliefs and creating new worldviews that are only loosely tied to the biblical distinctives that have historically defined them. The head of research in the project, George Barna at ACU, concluded the irony of the reshaping of the spiritual landscape in America is that it represents a post-Christian reformation driven by people, catch this, seeking to retain a Christian identity. Unfortunately, the theology of this reformation is being driven by American culture rather than biblical truth. And the president of the university says this, as Christians, we are called to be salt and light, to transform the culture around us by sharing biblical principles and living according to God's truth. The latest research, research shows the opposite is occurring. The church has forgotten its mission. We are certainly a society in desperate need of the gospel. Many of us want to solve the problems we have in our society, and I get that. But how can we possibly expect to change minds without changed hearts? God has called us to make disciples. That's what he has called us to do. And that is our text this morning. If you would please stand in honor of the word of God. 
Paul's second letter to his young protege, Timothy, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think before we dive into this text, it's helpful to think about the background in which Paul is writing to Timothy in Ephesus. Timothy, of course, is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. It's where the Apostle John and perhaps Mary, Jesus' mother, lived. Imagine giving a sermon in that church. Ephesus was probably the fourth largest city in the world. It was a key crossroads of commercial activity. It was an intellectual center. It had the very famous Celsus Library. And it was also a place that was difficult to be a Christian. I would argue way more difficult to be a Christian in Ephesus than in America today. In fact, there was a giant temple there to the Greek goddess Artemis. It was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was a football and a half, football field and a half in length and a football field in width. It had 127 marble columns that were nearly 60 feet tall. There were brothels all over the city. There was the giant gymnasia where men trained to become the perfect man. And there were giant communal baths where men bathed together in the nude. The pressure to conform to Hellenistic society was so intense that Hellenistic Jews performed something known as the epispasm, which was an operation to undo circumcision so that they could fit into the culture. The giant agora, the market in Ephesus, was the economic center for life in the city. An entrance to the market required that you burned incense honoring Caesar as God. Imagine being a Christian there. 30 years after 2 Timothy was written, we read about the church in Ephesus when Jesus sent them a letter in the book of Revelation. By then, there were 14 temples to various deities and the emperor. When Paul wrote this letter to Timothy in about 66 AD, the emperor Nero's persecution of Christians had gone on for about two years at this point. Nero, who had several marriages, including state-sponsored homosexual marriages, and one of which was to a boy that he turned into a eunuch. Nero fed Christians to the lions. He set some on fire to serve as lanterns or torches at his parties. And Nero had Paul beheaded not long after he wrote this letter to Timothy from prison. Ephesus is a pretty bad place. The Roman Empire, pretty bad place. 
I think it's important for us to remember that context as we then hear Paul's commands to Timothy moving forward. And to give you even some deeper context of the entire book, Paul starts the book with five commands to Timothy, and you see those on the screen. He says, fan into flame your salvation and ministry. Literally, it's rekindle it. I would argue maybe the church in America could use to rekindle its flame. Do, do not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. Share in suffering for the gospel. The word gospel literally means evangelism, the good news. It's the Greek word evangelon. Follow the pattern of sound doctrine. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. These are the commands of chapter 1. And then Paul in chapter 2 and 3 then provides some real practical application of how to do those things. He says, share in the suffering is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. I feel like maybe the church has gotten a little entangled in civilian pursuits. He says, remember in verse 8, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel for which I, Paul, am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We're called to endure so that God can save others. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Starting to see a trend here, I think. In this case, Paul, Paul's talking about having a war of words with false teachers. He says, don't do that. What's his point? Focus on the gospel. That's what we're called to do. We're called to focus on the, on the gospel. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is sound doctrine. Be committed to sound doctrine. Then in verse 16, he says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. World and Worldly and empty chatter, does that sound familiar? He says, so flee youthful passions, verse 22. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. For me, youthful passions meant winning every political argument. Some of you can maybe feel that. Instead, Paul says, focus on the fruit of the Spirit. Focus on your walk with God. Then he says, have nothing. I mean, this is, this is kind of a recurring theme, isn't it? Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies that you, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Have you participated in foolish, ignorant controversies? I have. 
Paul says, patiently endure. God may save them. And then, chapter 3, verse 1. Again, here we go again. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Does that sound familiar? Sound like the time that we're in? And then at the end of chapter 3, it's going to allow when I do that. Uh, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And in the verse we all know, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped and complete for every God work. Paul says persecution, good, good. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. Persecution, yes, continue. Focus on scripture that you may be made complete and equipped. So if I were to summarize what Paul had to say in chapters 2 and 3, this practical, practical application, I would say this. I would say the summary would be, don't focus on what you're against. Rather, focus on what, you've, what you're for. And we find that in scripture. And so we come to our text this morning where Paul has given us Nine very strong marching orders. Nine very strong marching orders. And he starts with the authority of the order. The imminency of the order. In 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul said this again, reminding you, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. The language he uses is similar to what a president might use, for example, in an executive order. The presidents often start those executive orders with the phrase, by the authority vested in me. And that's what Paul is saying here. And then following this order are these, uh, or the, the significance of this, the authority of this, Paul gets into the imminency of the order. Paul communicates the need for haste. Judgment is coming. In fact, the phrase, by his appearing, the Greek word for appearing is where we get the word epiphany. Like when you have a sudden idea, a brainstorm. It was a word that was used to describe an unannounced and sudden visit by an emperor. And Paul uses this very word in 2 Thessalonians to discuss the return of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom is coming. Paul says, I have authority 
And this message, these orders are imminent. Carry them out. These nine commands, one commentator said this, carry the crisp forcefulness of a military order. Many of you served in the United States military, and we thank you for that service. For those of you that did, can you imagine just absolutely ignoring a direct order? Because that's what's happening here. We're being given orders. If we don't follow them, there's no other way for us to look. We have to ask ourselves two questions. Are we saved? And if we are, uh, we're in sin, in need of repentance. That's how clear this is written. The first order that, that Paul gives to Timothy is to preach the word. The word caruso in the Greek is the word for preaching. It is used publicly in the Greek era for announcing the appearance of a king. And that's exactly what we are called to do. We are, to, we are called to herald the coming of the king just as John the Baptist did. John the Baptist in Matthew 3, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again in John 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We are to herald the coming of the king. We are called to announce him and we are called to preach the whole counsel of God's word. Paul says that in Acts 20, verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And this, of course, is written in the context of what we just read. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. We are to preach the Word, and we are to announce the King. That's an order. Second order, be ready in season and out of season. The Latin Vulgate, which was the first Latin translation of the Greek, translated the term be ready with the word insta, obviously for instant. This phrase could be used of a soldier that had to be ready in a moment's notice. You might consider, for example, the Minutemen during the American Revolution, or like a firefighter today who's ready and vigilant. The phrase is be on guard, be ready in season and out of season. The early church father Chrysostom said this about this passage. He said, take opportunities and make opportunities to preach the word. See, we're to do this whether it's convenient or it's inconvenient. We're to do this whether we feel like it or not. And this is my favorite. This is the one I hear the most whether we believe we're good at it or gifted at it or not. You don't understand, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. You are to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You're to be ready in season and out. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. California pastor John MacArthur says this, outside of a purposeful disobedience of God's word, the most spiritually foolish thing a Christian can do 
is to waste time and, and opportunity, to fritter away his life in trivia and in half-hearted service of the Lord. Order number three from Paul to Timothy is to reprove. The Greek word for reprove meant to correct error, to expose to the light. It was a legal term that denoted a reasoned argument, a reasoned argument that refuted another position. Paul is saying we're to point out error for the purposes of repentance. Really important that we understand this is focused on the church. Like we Christians, we love to rebuke society. But this is actually focused on the church to reprove. Titus 1.13 says, For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. But it must be done in love. Revelation 3.19, Jesus' letter to the churches. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Paul's third order, we reprove to promote repentance. And we do so in love. Paul's fourth order, all in verse 2, is to rebuke. The idea of rebuking is a strong warning. A strong reprimand. It's similar to reproof, but it comes with great authority. An example might be with my daughter. I might use it if she stepped into a busy street without looking. A rebuke might come. Whereas reproof is something I do when I need to correct her when she's done wrong. Rebuke, reproof. We get a sense for the sharpness of the word in Luke 8 when Jesus rebuked the weather. And we see it again in Mark 1 when Jesus cast out demons. And I think most clearly when Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. But rebuke requires a readiness to forgive as well. Luke chapter 17, 3, Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Order number five is to exhort, also in verse two. The Greek word is parakaleo, which is meant to plead with or urge, and it carried a strong sense of encouragement. It's, the word is the same word for which we get the name of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the helper. The idea here is to urge and encourage godliness. Paul says in Ephesians four, verse one, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, in verse 22, were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Finally, exhort is the idea of stirring up love and good deeds, which we see in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 5. And let us consider how to, store, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But how are we to do these things? How are we to reprove, rebuke, and exhort? Paul finishes verse 2 by saying this, with complete patience and instruction. Patience with people is required for those who are often slow to change. Change is a painstakingly slow process, amen? 
we also recognize that Christ is pretty patient with us. We read that in Romans 2. He also says not just patience, but also instruction. And this is, of course, in the context of preaching the word, chapter 4, verse 2. All scripture is profitable, inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And so Paul's comments are really pointed to the idea that we are called to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with a heart for the hearer combined with instruction in Scripture. And then we see in verses 3 and 4 that, that Paul pauses the orders for a moment because he wants to, Timothy to know the urgency of this call. This call is important. It is for now. And here's what he says in verse 3 and 4. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Again, this is really important that we understand. This is directed at the church. It's not directed at society. The church will do these things. And the time is coming, as Paul said. At the church uh, in Ephesus, they soon found that out. In fact, the church would collapse within 200 years of this letter. I would argue to you that the time is here in the American church, that we have accumulated in the church in this country false teachers, that we don't endure sound teaching. The context is, again, 2 Timothy 3, what the passage today, chapter 4, verse 2. That's the context. But we don't want reproof. We don't want rebuke. You can encourage me a little, but don't tell me I'm wrong. True? We don't want that. Rather, Paul says, we have itching ears. You've maybe had an itch that needs to be scratched to find relief, but you can't actually get to it. Have you ever had that happen? That's what Paul's talking about here. He says they will find teachers who will scratch the itch of their own passions to make themselves feel better. They will look for teachers who, do, who suit the things that they want to do. This is obviously not how Scripture calls believers to live. Instead, though, people at this time will call for teachers who glorify and enable what they want to do rather than what God has. And these false doctrines taught by false teachers lead us to wander. They lead us to wander and chase after myths. And myths can be any doctrine or belief that obscures the truth. Don't miss that. It's not like a belief in Artemis. It's anything that obscures the truth. Paul has already talked about that in the whole context of 2 Timothy. We read it. He said this. He said, civilian pursuits, quarrels about words, worldly and empty chatter, youthful passions, foolish and ignorant controversies. These are the myths that we would rather chase after. Have you held any beliefs that obscure the truth? 
Colossians 3, verses 2 and 3 says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on things above. Is that where your mind is? Is it set on things above or is it set on the things of the earth? And then we come to verse 5, the last verse. Paul starts with, but you, but you. You be obedient. You act according to your calling. And then he gives us order number six. But you be sober-minded. The Greek word for sober-minded is to be sober-minded. I mean, it actually means not drinking wine. Um, it, ideas that are involved here are being in control of yourself, being level-headed, maintaining composure, being stable and steadfast. The New American Commentary says, keep your head in all situations. Paul used it to refer to being prepared for the return of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 5. And Peter did it throughout his book. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Probably should be pretty sober if there's a lion prowling about. But how do we do this? Well, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 9. Right? He talks of the, the analogy of the athlete. Right? Through discipline. Beating your body, making it your slave through discipline. And we just read Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above, not on the earth. We discipline ourselves by setting our minds on things above. That's how we become sober-minded. We don't become sober-minded by thinking about all the foolish controversies here on earth. That gets us pretty passionate. And then, order number seven, Paul says, endure suffering. It's a very strong command, again, like a military order. I want those of you that have been in the military to think about this. If your commander said, do this, and you're like, nah, I'll think about it, how that might go for you. This is a strong command to endure persecution, and Timothy actually would soon face this. Hebrews 13, 23 tells us that Timothy was in prison. And about 30 years after this is written, church tradition holds that Timothy was killed as he tried to stop worshipers from going to the temple of Artemis to worship Artemis. And I would bet that that was probably Christians he was trying to stop. If you follow the orders that Paul issued, persecution is coming. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That's a thing of persecution, right? It's a thing of suffering. Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose, loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I don't know about you. But the last thing I want to hear from Jesus is that he's ashamed of me. Paul calls us to endure persecution by denying ourselves 
and taking up our cross. Then the eighth of the nine orders, do the work of an evangelist. He's been saying this throughout the book. We've read some of those things. The word literally means to proclaim the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, who suffered on the cross, dying for your sins, overcoming death and rising again on the third day, allowing you to come back into a right relationship with God the Father. Some are called to the office of an evangelist, but Timothy clearly is not. Paul says, do the work of an evangelist. We are called to the same thing. The verb to evangelize in the Greek, to proclaim the good news, is used 54 times in the New Testament. The noun that uses the same root, the gospel, the good news, is used 76 times. All Christians are called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Order 9, Paul says, fulfill your ministry. This is the summary of this passage. It's the summary of the passage. Paul says, do your job. Do your job. You may remember 1 Timothy, he said, Timothy, don't let people look down on you because of your youthfulness. Here he's saying, I know the Roman Empire is crazy and Ephesus is nuts. Do your job. Do your job. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Confront sin. Endure suffering. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do your job. Do your job. Preach the good news. Paul's letter to Timothy here provides specifically a call to pastors, right? I mean, we call these the pastoral epistles. But it is applicable to all. Throughout Scripture, we see Christians being called to share the gospel. I've heard people say that, no, that's not my job. That's the pastor's job from the pulpit. You should get up every morning, every Sunday, and preach the gospel. I would disagree with that. We see here the pastor's job is to preach the whole counsel of God's truth, which also includes which also includes the honor of preaching the good news. I remember hearing an advertisement uh, for a major, doesn't need to be named, but a major Christian evangelist meeting a couple of years ago from a very well-known evangelist, got a radio show, the whole thing. And he told people not to share the gospel. Listen to this. He said, don't share the gospel, but bring your friends so that I can share with them. Brothers and sisters, we are ignoring what God has commanded to do if that's the attitude that we take. And I suspect that many of us, including myself, have taken that attitude far too much. This thinking absolves Christians of their job. It's what we're called to do. We've just looked at it. See, people are not getting saved by church programming. You know, if we have this big event, everyone will come and everyone will be... That's not how people are being saved. People are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ from other sinners who have been saved. People telling others what Christ has done in their lives. 
That's the good news. You don't need to be eloquent. You don't need to have great programs. You need to share what Jesus has done for you. It doesn't matter if it's inconvenient. It doesn't matter if you feel like it or not. That's what we're called to do. We allow a lot of things to get in the way of that mission. Politics. Right? We'd much rather have a political debate than tell people about Jesus. Shame on us. Economics. Theology. Culture. Fear. But in the end, we are called to share the good news. In Psalm 96.3, we're told, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. And of course, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Go, therefore make disciples. Romans 10, 13 to 15, man, I love this passage. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus has prepared, God has prepared these good works for us to walk in. Let's walk in them. 1 Peter 2, 9, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the, proclaim the excellencies of him. It's our job. Proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness and into Marvelous light. And then finally, Luke 10, verse 2. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And I pray that God would raise up laborers among us here today to the harvest that we have in this community. God has brought people into our lives so we can share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, and God commands that we do it. God requires our service. There are places in this church that you can minister as well. I was talking with Jody this week. We need five teachers in our children's ministry. Five. If you're interested in doing that, please contact Jody. We start next week. It's important. Maybe the week after. It's important. We need that. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we listen to the call. It's not a request. They're orders. It's not a request. If we're saved, then we are supposed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not doing it, you have to ask yourself that question. Am I saved and in sin for not doing it? Or am I not saved? There's really not a lot of middle ground. We are called to share the gospel. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, we would love to share the good news with you. And by this, I, I mean all believers here would love to share the good news with you. 
If you want to come up after the service, if there's someone here you don't, you don't really know, uh, and you want to come up and talk to someone after the service, I'm going to ask that the elders come forward. We would love to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would fan the flame God, that you would rekindle the fire that you lit on our hearts when we were saved. God, that we would have an understanding of our need for salvation, that we would have an understanding of what you did for us, God, and that that would light a fire to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us. Father, help us to be focused on what we are for. God, I thank you so much for those that you've brought here today and those that are listening at home. God, I pray that we honor you in the things that we say and do today. God, help us to look for opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.